Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today's episode is about Vladimir Putin. This is a re-release of an episode I put out more than three years ago. And for future reference, I'm releasing this in May of 2022. Vladimir Putin is currently the president of Russia and his country is in the middle of an invasion of Ukraine. And so that's why this is being re-released. I wanted to update it with a little bit more context, uh, fill in a, a few holes here and there, and then also take the narrative forward a little bit to bring us to the current day. Um, to give my thoughts a little bit, which I will do at the end on the current situation and how Putin's background plays into it. Uh, you know, part of my reason for wanting to re-record was inspired by a friend that I was talking to who was talking about the war in Ukraine. And he said, you know, I can't believe that this entire war, that this horrible situation is being caused because one person, Vladimir Putin, has just gone completely insane. And I said, do you think that's really what's happening here? Do you think that this war is happening because Putin is just off his rocker? And he said, no, I mean, I guess not. I guess I know it's more complicated than that. And I said, well, then why'd you say that? And he said, I don't know. It's just kind of what people say. And it reminds me a little bit of September 11th, 2001. And uh, after the terrorist attacks on the Twin Towers, of course, everyone was opposed to Al-Qaeda. Everyone was mad. And George W. Bush delivered an address and he said that they hate us because we're free. And he said in his address to Congress that Al-Qaeda, um, their objective is to kill all Christians and Jews in the world. Now, th that was not true. That was not their objectives. Uh, that was not their motivation. And, you know, at the time, who was going to, who was going to say otherwise? Who's going to be like, you know, actually, you're wrong. That's not what Al-Qaeda wants. Because no one was going to say that because it sounded like you were defending them, right? And... I think that led to a bad situation where we didn't understand their motivations and where they were coming from, what they wanted. And that led us to make bad policy decisions. That doesn't mean that we should have uh, indulged them. It doesn't mean that we should have appeased Al-Qaeda, but I think we would have made better decisions if we had made more of an effort to understand what they wanted and where they were coming from and their background. In the same way, I feel like no one wants to say, you know, actually, Putin's not just a crazy person who's off his rocker. Like he's got other motivations and other aims here that we should probably understand. That doesn't to say like it's exactly like Al Qaeda. That doesn't mean that those aims and objectives are legitimate or that we should appease him, but we should at least understand him better, I think, than we generally do here in the West. So, you know, I'm humble about my role in all this, of course. I'm not like the Putin expert. There are Putin experts, and, and I'm not one of them. I'm just someone who's trying to read up on, on their material. But I, I do think it's a good thing if more of us can understand uh, the situation, who Putin is, what his background is, what his motivations are, and what, what he wants. So even though I'm, I'm trying to understand that, I'm trying to understand him, it's not a pro-Putin podcast. It's also not an anti-Putin podcast. I'm not trying to like come in here and assassinate his character. Um, it's just an objective look at his life how he did what he did, what his background is, and what makes him tick. That's really what I'm trying to do here. You know, uh, besides the current events and what's happening now, Putin is absolutely fascinating to me um, for a number of reasons. And, and one of the primary ones is this. If you go back about 25 years 
and look at where Vladimir Putin was. He was a nobody. Uh, you go look at him in 1995, and you would see a 43-year-old, unemployed, low-level, regional bureaucrat. He had an unremarkable career. He had an unremarkable family. He even looked unremarkable. Uh, he was trim, standing five foot seven, and slightly balding. And then flash forward five years, and he is the president of Russia. Flash forward 20 years to, to today, and you know he uh, he exercised absolute control over the country. He's reestablished Russia as a geopolitical force to be reckoned with. He's invaded multiple of his neighbors. He's potentially a multi-billionaire who might be one of the richest men on the planet. And so his life is extremely compelling because it's this uh, unlikely story. And it's very rare to have the type of story where you can say, all right, this guy was almost like literally a nobody, like literally, you know, managing a chain of restaurants or something in St. Petersburg and instead became one of the 10 most powerful people on the planet. That's just a remarkable story to me. And um, throughout his life, you can see Putin use some of the same exact strategies and tactics that we've seen from other people on this podcast. And I, I think that shows you a little bit that on some level, greatness can be learned. And, you know, make no mistake, Vladimir Putin is great. That's not to say that he's good or that he's admirable or that he's someone that you should try to be like necessarily. But, you know, you talk about great man theory. He is obviously a great man, meaning that he is one of the people who affects history, one of the few people on planet Earth today who can say that they definitely are going to affect uh, history and how world events turn out. So I think it's interesting to see how he has risen to be able to acquire that kind of power from where he was. Before we get into it, a quick note about my sources. The three books I relied on most heavily were The New Czar, The Rise and Reign of Vladimir Putin by Stephen Lee Myers. That's If you're going to read one biography of Putin, uh, that's the one I would probably recommend, uh, even though uh, maybe he has an updated version. When I read it, uh, it didn't cover all the events to the present day, but for his early life, uh, it's a very, very good biography. Uh, another one I read was The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by Masha Gessen. That's probably the one I'd recommend least, but whatever, fine, gave me a perspective. Uh, and then another one that I actually thought was quite good was Putin's People by Catherine Belton. And uh, that one gets a little conspiratorial. I don't agree with all of her takeaways, but um, it's very well researched and does bring some new things to light. So I think is, is super valuable. The one thing that I think is missing is, um, you know, I'm not someone who is rah-rah, let's go Putin, but I couldn't find any like pro Putin English language biographies. If anyone knows of any, I would be interested in reading that perspective because I haven't been able to find it. Anyway, those are my sources. Um, and before we get into it, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. When you study the past, especially the recent past, like the 1800s, one of the things that you find is the writing is just incredible. And not just from great writers, but from average people. You go and read letters from your average Civil War soldier in the 1860s, and this guy's got like a third grade education, and he was a better writer than your average novelist in 2022. So what explains this discrepancy? Why did people with a third grade education in 1860 write so much better than people with a PhD in 2022? Well, one of the biggest differences is the way that they learned to write. Before the 20th century, the most common way of learning how to write was called copywork. And copywork is just a fancy way of saying you copy the writing of the best writers of all time. And you think about it, if you're learning to play the piano, 
Do you start out by composing your own pieces? No, that would be a very bizarre way to learn. You start out playing Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and all the great composers. So the idea of copy work is that you're going to learn to write well by just copying great writers until their writing rubs off on you. And uh, it seems really simple, but it works really well. And so that's why I'm proud to be partnering with my friend and mentor, Sam Parr, to create a copy work course that's called Copy That. It helps you learn how to write sales copy by learning and copying some of the best writing of all time. It's a 10-day email course where you learn the basics of copy work. Learning to be a great writer is one of the most important facets of learning to be a great leader. It's one of the things that you see from Julius Caesar to Napoleon to Steve Jobs to the current day. It is a common attribute that these great leaders are great writers. So take your writing skills to the next level. Go check it out, learn more, and sign up at trycopythat.com and use code TAKEOVER to get $20 off. Again, that is trycopythat.com and use code TAKEOVER for $20 off. Make today the day you become a better writer. Go to trycopythat.com. Let's start at the beginning. Vladimir Putin was born in 1952 in St. Petersburg at a time when the city had been absolutely devastated by World War II. In order to understand Putin, you have to understand the city that he was born and raised in. St. Petersburg was a really tough working class city after the war. And um, one quick sidebar, at the time that Putin was born and grew up, the city was known as Leningrad. That was the name given to it in 1924 by the communist government. But historically, it had been known as St. Petersburg. And after the Soviet Union fell, it became known as St. Petersburg again. And for convenience and clarity, I'll just call it St. Petersburg the whole time, even though during Putin's lifetime, it was known as Leningrad up until 1991. But Putin grew up in a middle-class family, but the circumstances in the city were such that most people listening to this podcast would probably identify his upbringing as poor. Um, they lived in a communal apartment that they shared with two other families. Vladimir and his parents had just one room to themselves, and that living arrangement was very normal for the time. That was how people lived in St. Petersburg back in, in the 50s and 60s. And by the way, many people still live that way in Russia, though conditions have improved and are continuing to improve uh, in, in that regard. St. Petersburg was a really gritty city. You know, it, it had been wealthy in the past, especially, you know, the late 1800s. But at this time, it was, uh, you know, think of it as like a Rust Belt city that has really fallen on hard times. It was a gritty city. Vladimir Putin was a gritty kid. He was something of a hooligan. He spent a lot of time on the streets. He got into fights quite often. He was always small. Even now, he's only 5'7", and has always been fairly thin. And he was bullied a little bit as a kid, so he developed something of, of what I like to call a honey badger syndrome. He didn't care. He'd fight anyone. If you insulted him in the slightest or made a threat, Vladimir Putin was ready to throw down. And uh, he was doing that as a way to compensate, you know, so that he wouldn't be bullied anymore because you knew that if you tried to insult or bully Vladimir Putin, you were going to have to see it through. You're going to have to fight him. So he got into lots of fights and made lots of trouble as a kid. And because of this, early in his life, he was a poor student. He was viewed as decently bright, but he was uninterested and disorganized. One of his teachers complained to Putin's father that little Vladimir wasn't living up to his potential. And I love his father's response because it sounds so Russian to me. His father replied, quote, well, what can I do? Kill him or what? Um, maybe I'll throw a, a Russian accent. He probably sounded more like this. Well, what can I do? Kill him or what? So can you imagine your dad saying that at like a parent-teacher conference? Oh, what do you want me to do? Kill him? So that's where Putin was as a child. 
Now, two things turned his life around from his hooliganism and turned him into a more disciplined person. The first was he got involved in martial arts, specifically judo. Putin absolutely loved martial arts, and he was pretty darn good at it. And again, this was a big turning point for him. It introduced order and discipline into his life. He said that, quote, it was sports that dragged me off the streets. The other turning point was the release of a movie called The Shield and the Sword. It was based on a book of the same name, and it was about a Soviet secret agent in World War II who goes behind enemy lines in Nazi Germany. It was a huge hit. People went wild for it in Russia, and that included Vladimir Putin. He thought it was awesome, and he was obsessed with it. And so when he saw it, Putin decided he wanted to be like the main character. So at age 16, he walked into a KGB office. And for those who don't know, the KGB was basically the Russian equivalent of the CIA. It was their spy service. And Putin walks into the KGB office in St. Petersburg and says, hey, I want to be an agent. And obviously, it doesn't work that way. You can't just go now into a CIA office and say, hey, I want to be an agent. I'm a 16-year-old kid. Where do I sign up? And obviously, it didn't work that way back then for the KGB. Um, but... These KGB officers like this plucky kid. So an officer comes out and sits down with him for a few minutes and he tells Putin that they only recruit qualified candidates from universities and from the army. So Putin says, okay, well tell me this. If I go to university, what would be the best thing to study for me to get into the KGB someday? And the officer tells him he should study law. So Vladimir Putin had his goal. He wanted to be a secret agent for the KGB and he was going to do everything he could to realize that dream. He started taking German classes and preparing to attend university to study law. His life flipped 180 degrees. He goes from being a disorganized, disobedient, and lazy student to becoming almost militantly disciplined. He continues to obsess over martial arts, but now he dedicates almost all the rest of his time to studying for the university entrance exam. Well, uh, after years of studying, he pulls it off and gets into Leningrad State University, which was one of the elite universities in Russia at the time. And so after uh, enrolling at Leningrad State University, uh, he's a, a good student, but again, um, a little bit unremarkable. He's, uh, he graduates in four years like you're supposed to. Uh, the only somewhat remarkable thing about his time there is that in his fourth year, he's indeed recruited by the KGB to go work for them. So he graduates from Leningrad State University and goes to work for the KGB as a low-level spy to start out. He goes to officer training and emerges as a counterintelligence first lieutenant. Counterintelligence meant he would not be going abroad, but rather staying in St. Petersburg. His job was to cultivate relationships with normal people and get them to turn in their neighbors and associates who might be saying or doing things that the Soviet Union did not approve of, or might even potentially be secret spies for the capitalist West. Or, you know, the, gold, the golden snitch, the thing that he most would like to, to find would be an American spy in St. Petersburg. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't really have that opportunity because... There isn't a ton of action. The Soviet Union, for one thing, had a tight grip on the country. There weren't a ton of people running around plotting revolution or spying for the U.S. But even if there was, they were going to be in Moscow, where the capital was. And that's where, you know, all the state secrets were. That is where, you know, if you were a spy, where you'd want to be, because that's where you could learn state secrets. Um, nothing was happening in St. Petersburg. So in the nine years that Putin was in the KGB in St. Petersburg, there was not one single spy caught. So at this point, Putin is doing some pretty boring stuff. He's making reports, he's cultivating relationships, and generally just making sure everyone stays in line. He would probably like to see more action if he could, but at the same time, he's not complaining. He's a company man. He's very loyal to the KGB. Um, he's not exactly getting to live his dream. He wanted to go abroad just like his childhood idol from the sword and shield, but he's a very loyal guy who believes in order and following the rules. So he plugs along like that for nine years. 
nine years in this totally unremarkable role in St. Petersburg. And, you know, this is another thing that makes this story kind of unique to me amongst the people I've studied. You know, there are no periods of nine years for Julius Caesar where he's spinning his wheels and nothing is happening. Um, there's no nine years for Napoleon where he just is a mid-level bureaucrat somewhere. And I think it tells you something about Putin. You know, people who want to say he's an evil genius. Um, he's not a genius. I'll say that much. You know, um, he's just not that smart. He's not dumb. I, I, I don't want to give that impression. But this is someone who was happy toiling away in bureaucratic minds, filing paperwork for nine years in St. Petersburg. There might have been a personal side to why he wasn't sent to an international post. The Soviet Union didn't like to send unmarried agents abroad because it was thought that they could be seduced and then flipped into double agents or blackmailed. That was actually a huge thing that the Soviet Union did to people in the West is they would hire prostitutes to get them to, to sleep with people and then secretly film it and then blackmail them and get them to work for the Soviet Union with blackmail. They were afraid that America would do the same thing to their agents, and I think we certainly did try to do that. So it was a liability to have unmarried agents in the field because they could be seduced this way. You know, at this point, Putin was still unmarried. He's 30, and for Russia at the time, this was very late in life to be unmarried. So that may have been holding him back. Well, at the age of 30, he finally does get married. And just a year later, he is promoted to major and sent to the School of Foreign Intelligence in Moscow. It's basically a boot camp for foreign spies. And this looks like it's going to be his big break. He's going to get to live his secret agent dream, finally, at last. You know, Vlad, if it was so important to you, you couldn't have got married a couple of years earlier, but I guess he was waiting for his, uh, for his true love. I mean, it's, it's, it's a romantic story, really. That's why I wanted to tell it. So at age 30, you know, it seems like this is a break. All right, I got to go to the West. I got to go undercover. I got to be a spy. Well, while he's studying at his boot camp, he comes home to St. Petersburg during a break, and he gets in a stupid fight with some guys on the metro. The kind of fight that he was always getting into as a kid. And in this fight, he breaks his arm. The fact that he got into a fight probably altered his trajectory at the KGB. As one of his friends later said, quote, he has a fault which is objectively bad for the special services. He takes risks. One should be more cautious, and he is not. It's funny because in most ways, he's very calculated, consistent, and disciplined. But he kept getting into fights. And it's because these little insults would really get to him. Um, and that's a, a thing that he shares, funnily enough, with Napoleon. Uh, it reminds me of a quote that Napoleon said. He said, quote, The French people need to support me with my flaws if they find in me some advantages. My flaw is being unable to bear insults. And that is very much um, Putin's flaw as well. Totally unable to bear personal insults. So, you know, he gets insulted on the metro. He gets in a fight with these guys. He breaks his arm. And he has to come back to boot camp. And they say, why'd you break your arm? I got in a fight in the metro. And they start saying, okay, well, is this a guy we can really trust if he's getting into, uh, you know, into random fights on the street? So Putin had been hoping to go to the capitalist West with his German skills and be behind enemy lines, a foreign spy. So that'd mean going to Switzerland, Austria, or West Germany. Uh, remember at the time, Germany was divided into West Germany, which was free and capitalist, and East Germany, which was communist. Well... That kind of goes out the window with this fight. So instead, he's sent to East Germany, to the city of Dresden. This is not a prestigious post. It's a sideshow. Dresden didn't matter. No one was spying on Dresden. There was no important work to be done. He's essentially going there to be a paper pusher. So this must have been incredibly disappointing for Putin to be sent here. But a common theme in his, in his career, in his rise, he doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't complain. He puts his head down and works hard. Ironically, while he's in Dresden 
uh, at the KGB office there, he was valued as someone who was a solid and unambitious employee, someone who wasn't gunning for the top post, but just wanted to get the job done. A colleague described him as, quote, a crystal clear person, which is so funny. You know, now he's known as like the uber spy, the most deceptive man in the world. And so it's funny to hear someone from this time describe him as a crystal clear person. In the nearly five years he was in Dresden, he climbed the ranks and eventually became one of the commanding officers at the small KGB office there. Now, uh, he, he gets the top job. He's the Michael Scott, right? He is the, the, one of the heads of this office, but it's this little, it's this little office in, in Nowhereville. But everything changed in 1989. Uh, again, this is four or five years that he, uh, that he was in Dresden. And Putin was still in Dresden when the Berlin Wall came down. The Berlin Wall was the wall in Berlin that separated um, the communist half of the city from the capitalist half of the city. And so when it came down, it was a sign that the Soviet Union was breaking apart and losing its grip on East Germany. In Dresden, shortly thereafter, people took to the streets to celebrate and to protest. Um, they were ready, you know, oh, the Berlin Wall is coming down. Communism is ending. And uh, so East, East Germany was ready to become free and independent. You know, communism is coming down. And East Germany had been under the thumb of the Soviet Union. You know, it was a satellite state. It was not really independent. It was completely controlled by the Soviets. And so these protesters, these people who are, are out there celebrating and protesting, the thing that they're protesting is, okay, well, if the Berlin Wall is, is coming down and things are headed in this direction, we're ready for communism to be over. We're ready for the KGB and the Soviet government to get out of East Germany. And so the first thing that these protesters do is go to the offices of the Stasi. And in East Germany, there was a German security and intelligence apparatus parallel to the KGB called the Stasi. Okay, so these are just the East German KGB. Like, like really, in fact, the two were not that separate. Um, the two worked hand in hand. And the Stasi had their offices in Dresden just down the street from the KGB offices. And as people are on the streets celebrating and protesting, they uh, one of the first things they do is protest outside the Stasi offices because... You know, these are the, the people who have been oppressing them under Soviet control. And eventually the protesters start getting more raucous and eventually they break into the Stasi offices and ransack the place. And they start taking out government documents and um, just, just completely ransack these offices. Now, again, this is a spy service. So, you know, pulling out these documents, like you're stealing spy secrets. This is a big deal. And Putin sees this and figures, well, you know, they're basically an extension of us. And our offices are like literally down the street. We're just a couple doors down. So our offices are next. They're coming for the KGB. And he's right. The crowd starts moving down the street towards the offices of the KGB. And Putin really doesn't want this to happen. They have top secret confidential files that would be compromising if found and distributed. Very compromising. Very bad. You know, I said that Dresden was a backwater where nothing happened. And that was true. Nothing happened in Dresden, really, in terms of spycraft. But... It was also a place where foreign agents would come to lay low after missions. That included assassins and terrorists. And that was a big thing during the Cold War. And you might have heard of Carlos the Jackal, um, but there were a lot of them. There were communist assassins who would kill various people who, who they wanted killed in the West. And so a lot of what Putin was probably doing during this time was debriefing some of these assassins who were taking out people in West Germany and then, you know, once you assassinate someone, you don't want to hang around. So they would get out of Dodge. They would come to East Germany. They would come to Dresden and they would meet with Putin who would 
take the intel report okay what happened did you kill the person how did you do it tell me everything and then he would get them set up in discrete apartments in dresden where they could lay low and not be noticed so even though there wasn't a lot of actual spycraft happening in dresden you know most of the time these people were assassinating people in berlin still the state secrets that were held in dresden are really important because they have all the intel of these assassinations and these terrorist attacks that the soviet union was doing elsewhere in the world so you know putin knows okay i'm the head of this office they're going to try and ransack it and take these documents they'd be very compromising to the soviet union if i'm doing anything here i cannot let this happen i cannot let this office get ransacked it will be disastrous for the soviet union and obviously disastrous for his career as well so as more and more protesters continue to gather he calls up the soviet military base in dresden and says hey can we get some backup over here and their reply is well we can't use force without authorization from moscow so he says we'll call it in ask for authorization so he waits they say okay we'll call and putin calls them back in a few minutes and says what did you hear from moscow uh, did they authorize you to use force and the officer who he's talking to says i didn't hear back from him i didn't hear anything he says quote moscow is silent and um this sentence this phrase moscow is silent really haunted putin for um probably still haunts him you know he um well here's what he said about it quote i had the feeling then that the country was no more that it had disappeared it became clear the union was ailing it was a deadly incurable disease called paralysis a paralysis of power and i think that that's interesting to keep in mind is that this is something that he was reacting to for the rest of his career that he never wanted to experience again this paralysis of power so maybe you can already connect the dots in your head of of how that might connect to what's going on today but he was committed to doing all he could to ensure that russia was never paralyzed or powerless again so uh sorry flashback the crowd is heating up getting more animated outside the kgb headquarters moscow is silent he's got no backup putin is in very real danger at this point the crowd is very obviously upset they're vengeful things hadn't turned violent yet but it was very possible that they could and that not only would they ransack the office but at this point the kgb officers there have to be worrying about their own personal safety as well so what do you do i mean they don't have heavy arms they're not a military installation if you are vladimir putin and you're seeing this and there are thousands of people out there and there's like eight of you in your office um maybe that's an exaggeration but i don't think that there were more than 30 people there okay and they might have handguns but that's it so what do you do well here's what he does do he walks out of the building slowly and deliberately he addresses the people at the head of the crowd he doesn't shout he speaks quietly and he says quote this house is strictly guarded my soldiers have weapons and i gave them orders if anyone enters the compound they are to open fire then he turns around and calmly walks back inside that's it and now none of this is true the compound is basically unguarded he doesn't have anyone with guns trained on them they don't have heavy weaponry but you know the protesters don't know that and the bluff works the crowd thinks better of it and they disperse and go elsewhere you know i said before he's not an evil genius he's certainly not a genius but this is a pretty brilliant bluff and uh, it paid off it's really i would say the first flash of greatness in putin's life and to be clear it's nothing more than a quick flash but it is something this story doesn't get widely told initially um it doesn't make him famous within the kgb 
the whole incident is lost in the bureaucratic shuffle back in Moscow because you know they got other stuff to worry about. They got bigger fish to fry. The Soviet Union is crumbling and is about to collapse. And so actually after this incident, the KGB offices in Dresden aren't around much longer. They close up shop, destroy their documents, and then everyone packs up and heads back to Russia. When Putin gets back, it's a very tough employment environment for former KGB officers. The Soviet Union is collapsing. There's not a lot of money to go around. And so tons of KGB agents who had had foreign assignments are coming back home and looking for new jobs in the KGB. And uh, there's way more agents than there are jobs. And Putin isn't exactly high on the totem pole. So there is no job ready and waiting for him. So he's looking for any job that he can get. And so it's 1991, he ends up back in St. Petersburg, and the job that he does take is a position at the university there. He's spying on students and recruiting new KGB agents. And this is a total dead-end job, um, but who cares? The Soviet Union is dissolving anyway. He's just happy to get paid. He's just happy to have a paycheck. But he's not at this job for very long. This is a time of rapid transition for Russia. Everything is changing, and in St. Petersburg, they're starting to have elections for the first time in modern history. The newly elected mayor is a guy by the name of Anatoly Sobchak. He's a reformer who talks a good game on democratic and free market reforms. But he also recognized the need to utilize the old state apparatus to govern. One problem with a lot of revolutions is you throw out the old guys and put in new guys, but now you don't have anyone who knows how to keep the lights on and the trains running and the sewers flowing and, and all the stuff that needs to be done on a day-to-day -day basis. And so Sobchak wants to avoid that problem. So even though he's trying to reform St. Petersburg, he also wants to bring in some of the old KGB guys uh, in order to help run things, help get things done. And one of the first KGB guys he hires is Vladimir Putin, who he wants to act as a liaison between him and the KGB, among other duties. His official position is advisor on international affairs. And um, so he does that for a year and he does well. The next year he gets promoted to head of the Committee for External Relations. And I say this, um, there are some different perspectives on this. Um, some people think that Sobchak wanted Putin uh, in order to act as a liaison with the KGB. Others think the KGB came to Sobchak and basically forced Putin on him. And um, basically said, hey, you know, we're putting someone in your administration to keep an eye on you to make sure you stay in line and he's going to be here whether you like it or not. I, um, I don't find that particularly compelling because Putin does rise and gets promoted by Sobchak, which to me says that at least on some level, he wanted him there and enjoyed his presence and, and found him to be a, a helpful employee. Um, but there is a sort of this relationship that Putin is working for him as a liaison and go-between between Sobchak and this new administration and the KGB, but he's also kind of keeping an eye on, on Sobchak as well for the KGB. And like I said, he starts off as a relatively unimportant part of the administration. In fact, when Sobchak writes his memoir of this period of his life, he didn't even include a single word about Vladimir Putin. That's how unimportant he was. You know, he had no inkling that this junior level administrator in the mayor's office of the second most important city in Russia could possibly rise to be the president. You know, that was not in his mind at all. And so how does he get from, from here to there? Well, uh, by all accounts, Putin was promoted because he was a hard worker and very efficient at getting things done. Uh, he was a tireless worker. The dude was a machine. Uh, it was like he didn't care about anything else. He just boom, 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 boom. He had all the KGB connections and he was relentless and he got stuff done. You know, the other reason that he was valued by Sobchak 
is that he wasn't ambitious. <laughs> he seemed like a loyal, humble, quiet guy who kept his head down. You didn't have to worry about him, you know, stealing the show and trying to steal the limelight. Uh, no, everything that Putin did, he let you take the credit for. So he starts rising within the administration. And three years later, in 1994, Putin becomes the deputy mayor, the second in command to Sobchak himself. But as Putin rises, he becomes a little bit of a public relations problem. Why? Well, now we're a few years on. The KGB is gone, has been replaced by an organization called the FSB. And the reason that it got replaced is because the Soviet Union had completely collapsed. This was now the Russian Federation, and it was transitioning to becoming a democratic country. And so people hated the KGB. You know, this was the spy service that internally had been spying on people, had been jailing them, had been torturing and killing people, you know, secret police who would just abduct people in the middle of the night, you know, like uh, you'd had, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years of this. And so the KGB was not something you wanted to be associated with. So it was embarrassing for Sobchak that his second in command is a former KGB officer. So they realize, all right, well, we need to address this. And the decision is made that Putin is going to go on television and do an interview. And um, it is a very interesting interview. Uh, I would call it his second real flash of brilliance. Because when he's asked about his KGB past, he doesn't apologize. He says that he was in foreign intelligence, not in domestic repression, which is not entirely true, by the way, but that's what he says. And he says uh, that the KGB became a monster that no longer carried out the tasks for which it was created. And the interviewer is like kind of taken aback by this and asks, so you don't repent of your past? And he says, no, I don't repent. I repent of crimes. I did not commit any crimes. He goes on to say that far from disqualifying him from public service, his background in government would be a benefit as he served the people of St. Petersburg because he knew how to get things done. So it's bold, even brazen, but it's really effective. Um, it really plays well with the public and they basically accept this. They, uh, they say, okay, yeah, great. And um, he's no longer a public relations problem for Sobchak. And I, I do think that's a major lesson that can be learned from him is uh, you don't, don't try and hide or cover your weaknesses. That's kind of the, the knee-jerk temptation or reaction um, when, when people point out a flaw is to say, no, 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 that's not true. But the most powerful thing you can do is flip it into a strength. Acknowledge your weakness, but say, no, 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 no. This is why it's not actually a weakness. You know, one of the most famous examples of this is Ronald Reagan when he ran for re-election against Walter Mondale was, uh, I think, the oldest man at the time to ever have run for president. Uh, since then, Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden have surpassed him. But uh, at the time, he was the oldest man to ever run for president, and there were concerns about his age. And in one debate, he was asked about his age and whether there were any doubts in his mind that he would have the energy to be president at his advanced age. And he responded, quote, not at all. And I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. And the response brought down the house. Even his opponent at the debate was dying of laughter. It was brilliant. Not only was it funny, but it shifted one of his biggest weaknesses, his age, into a strength. So he was acknowledging, yeah, I'm old. But you know what? That gives me wisdom and experience. And um, it was a brilliant tactic. And it's basically the same one that Putin is using here. It's not enough to deny and protect your weaknesses. It's much more effective to accept and acknowledge them and use them as strengths. Are you lazy? You can recast it as clever. You do a better job by working smart while others slave away to no effect. Do you have a temper? Recast it as passionate. Others might display emotion too if they cared about the issue as much as you do. 
So Putin has continued to do this to the current day. Uh, Putin's background as a KGB man who projects strength and wants to preserve Russian power would end up being one of his greatest strengths. It's some pretty brilliant verbal jujitsu. But for now, he is uh, just scratching the surface of his ability to communicate in this way. One other thing about his working style at this time, he has an attribute that is similar to the other people I have covered on this podcast. He's insanely good at compartmentalizing. There's an incident where his wife gets in a really bad car accident. And she goes to the hospital where she finds out that she has cracked three vertebrae in her back. And she's in a really bad condition. She's immobilized in the bed there in, in a St. Petersburg hospital. And Putin comes in uh, to check on her. And he is in there, checks on her, looks, asks the doctor, is she going to live? Yes, she's going to live. Anything I can do? Nothing you can do? Boom. And he's out. It's not that he doesn't care or doesn't love his wife. But once he figures out that she's not going to die, she's going to be taken care of, um, and there's nothing he can do about it, boom. He compartmentalizes that section of his life and goes back to work and focuses on what he can control. It reminds me a lot of both Napoleon and Steve Jobs. Uh, it's probably a top three important attribute to greatness, this meta-focus. Can you compartmentalize your mind and remove distractions? Can you set aside pressing issues because this just isn't the time to think about them? And of course, the most famous example of this is Napoleon, who said that his mind was like a giant dresser and that he could open and shut cupboards at will. And then when he wanted to sleep, he just shut all the cupboards. He was thinking about nothing and he was asleep. And Putin has this ability insanely well as well. Well, at this time, Putin's boss, Sobchak, was this rising star. He's this symbol of democracy and change in Russia. In some ways, he's the anti-Putin. He's not great at getting things done, but he's a very smooth talker. He's a great people person. He's a great politician. He's great at, at projecting this idea of, of change, right? He's like um, the mid-90s Obama of Russia. He quickly becomes the second most famous politician in Russia after the president himself. There's a ton of momentum and excitement around him because he's supposed to be this important reformer. But the problem is he's actually more famous and more popular in the rest of Russia than he is in St. Petersburg, where he's mayor. Because in St. Petersburg, people can tell that actually he's talking a big game, but he's actually super corrupt. Or at least the government around him is super corrupt because, again, he's not good at getting things done. Uh, he's not good at figuring out even what's actually going on in his own government. So through, frankly, negligence, his government had become really, really corrupt. And in 1996, Sochak loses re-election. As deputy mayor, Putin is, of course, somewhat involved in all this corruption. And in fact, there are a number of things that you can look back on. One of them, this famous thing, is St. Petersburg got short on food for a while. And so there was this scheme to sell some of their commodities, like I think it was oil and steel, for, for food. Um, and Putin is put in charge of this. And what do you know? the oil and steel disappears, but not a lot of food shows up. It's complicated. Putin was probably using the money to pay off some debts and not using a lot of it to, to enrich himself. But, you know, there was a lot of corruption in St. Petersburg at the time. And Vladimir Putin was certainly involved on a certain level. But at the same time, he leaves the Sobchak administration with this reputation specifically for not being corrupt. He's actually known as like a, a clear-cut, guy you can trust, um, someone who's, who's not corrupt. It's, um, it's hard to figure out, but I, I actually think it's just, it was partly true, but it's only true in comparison to others. Like, yes, 
Putin is selling off state assets for money, but maybe he's taking a smaller cut than some other people who are really rapacious. And maybe he's more straightforward and transparent about it, which it's funny to think about being transparent about corruption. Um, but honestly, like if you're trying to do business in St. Petersburg, that might matter. Like, okay, well, you're a little bit corrupt, but you know, if you can just tell me how much I need to pay and like what the cost of doing business is, is here, uh, you know, I might appreciate that and consider you a, a, a crystal clear, clear cut guy if you can tell me that. So, you know, he did get this reputation for not being very corrupt, but saying that you were one of the less corrupt Russian politicians in the 90s is a little bit like saying that you're one of the most virtuous prostitutes on the street. Uh, it's like winning the world's tallest dwarf competition. Um, yes, he, compared to the competition, he was not all that corrupt. It was a very, very low bar that he was competing with. When Sobchak loses, this of course leaves Vladimir Putin once again without a job or any serious prospects. He doesn't really have anywhere to go. There's no natural path to follow. There's no natural path from St. Petersburg politics, which were pretty small time, to Moscow, where everything was happening and where things actually mattered. So Putin thinks, all right, my time in government is done. And at this point in his life, in the mid-90s, he strongly considers opening up a law practice or becoming a judo teacher. He is 43 years old. And you'd think if someone was going to accomplish something in their life, they were going to achieve true greatness, they would have already accomplished something by the time that they are 43, or at least be on track to doing something. But here's Putin, out of a job, strongly considering becoming a judo teacher. And this is what I was referencing before. It is amazing. I mean, we are like five years away from Putin being one of the 10 most powerful people on planet Earth. And if things had gone a certain way, you could go to St. Petersburg today and find a judo gym. You know, he's a pretty good guy. I bet you he would have had a chain of judo gyms. I bet you he would have had three or four and would be making 100K a year. Like, I'm sure Vladimir Putin would be doing fine if he had gone this route. But that's what he was looking at. But instead, what happens is he gets offered a small-time job in Moscow, in the federal government. He is hired as the deputy chief of the Presidential Property Management Department. Why he was extended this offer is a bit of a mystery since he wasn't particularly well-connected in Moscow, but he still had a reputation as someone who wasn't corrupt. He was young and connected to Sobchak. It's likely that the president at the time, Boris Yeltsin, thought that Putin was a good compromise staffer to bring in. Two of the main factions at the time were these reformers, the Democrats, and the hardliners. And the hardliners were old KGB agents who wanted to maintain the old Soviet structure just without the communism. And uh, so they didn't like change. Uh, they wanted to maintain the power of the state, especially of the military and intelligence services. The reformers, the Democrats, wanted to see Western-style reforms, including a free press, free elections, and free markets. And Putin must have seemed like a great compromise. He had worked for Sobchak, one of the most famous reformers in the country, but also at the same time, he was an ex-KGB agent who clearly had connections there as well. So his unique position of having a foot in each camp gets him into the administration, but not at a very high level. He, he's still a pretty junior level bureaucrat. And so once again, you know, you can repeat it with me, just like in Dresden, just like in St. Petersburg, he starts at a low level, but he consistently works hard, keeps his head down, doesn't take the credit and starts getting promoted. Not a huge rising star, not a super fast rise, but year after year, 
He's moving just a little bit up. Until finally, in 1998, he gets appointed to become head of the FSB, which, as I said, is Russia's new intelligence organization. So this is like his dream job, right? He had always wanted to be this big spy, and now he is the head of the Russian spy agency. If you believe the story that Putin told, which I don't know that we should, um, he said that he actually didn't want to accept this role. He didn't like all the politics of it. He liked being a back office guy who could keep his head down and get things done. So when President Boris Yeltsin comes to him and says, I want you to be the head of the FSB, he's like, oh, let me think about it. I'm not sure. But Yeltsin, you know, according to the story, Yeltsin insists because the FSB was badly in need of reform. And Yeltsin thinks that Putin is the only guy who can do it. You know, it, it needed reform because, you know, I mentioned that there were kind of these factions. Well, the, the KGB faction, the, the old hardliners, are in charge of the FSB. They're in charge of the intelligence service. And they're actively working against Yeltsin, who was a Democrat, who was a reformer. And so this guy's like, man, I can't operate a government where half of my government is working against me. Uh, I need to get someone in here who can come in and reform it. And Yeltsin thought that Putin was the guy for the job, was the only person who could do this. So Putin comes in with this mandate to root out the corruption, root out these people who are openly opposing the president. And it turns out he was the right man for the job. He was a good guy to choose. He gets in there, he follows Yeltsin's orders, he fires a bunch of officers, abolishes outdated departments, and replaces them with new and needed one. He roots out the worst of the offenders in terms of corruption. And he's pretty good at all this because, again, he's used to staying out of the fray. People try and make all this noise. He takes this attitude of like, look guys, this isn't a war of egos. I'm not trying to say I'm the man. I'm not coming in here and remaking the FSB in my image. I'm just following orders here. And this has got to happen. You're either on board or you're not. You're on the train or you're off the train, okay? These reforms are happening. Are you on board or not? And more people than not get on board with the reforms. So he does a, a pretty bang up job of, uh, of reforming the FSB. And so of course doing this reform ingratiates him with Boris Yeltsin. And Yeltsin starts looking at this guy thinking, okay, well, this is someone who could play even, an even larger role in my administration. And so um, there comes a time, uh, a moment of crisis in the Yeltsin administration. There are some old regime hardliners who are very upset with Yeltsin. So there are rumors of a coup, a government overthrow. And Yeltsin needs someone to go on TV and calm people's nerves and discourage the plotters from turning these grumblings and plans into an actual coup attempt. So he leans on Putin. Putin goes on TV, and in his very straightforward, unemotional, almost robotic manner, he gives a summary of the situation and says, quote, Those who violate the Constitution and try to undermine Russia's state system by unconstitutional methods with the use of force will run up against appropriate resistance. This is something you can be sure of. This has the effect of restoring confidence in the Yeltsin government and discouraging the plotters. And Putin's cool-headed and able handling of the situation earns him some more points with Yeltsin. And the timing is very good for this to happen for, for Vladimir Putin. At this point, Yeltsin is nearing the end of his second term as president, and constitutionally, he couldn't run again. And while he tried to be a pro-market, pro-Western, liberal reformer, he was also very, very corrupt. He was selling off state assets left and right. And so he's looking for a successor who is loyal, who he can be sure will not charge him with corruption once he leaves office. The last thing he wants is to stop being president and end up in jail. So he's looking around and he's thinking, okay, who has proven that they are very loyal to me and has shown that they're a capable administrator and I think could, could do the job. 
who comes to mind, but Vladimir Putin. Um, this guy has been a capable administrator. He reformed the FSB, and by handling this attempted coup, he has proven that he is absolutely loyal to Yeltsin. So he names Putin to be his prime minister, the second most important position in Russia. You know, this is highly visible. It gives Putin a chance to practice governing and getting in front of the Russian voters so that they would be familiar with him. And so becoming prime minister not only is a very important position in its own right, but it also gives Putin the inside track on running for president. In fact, when Yeltsin appoints him as prime minister, it becomes clear like, okay, I'm blessing this guy. This is who I want to be uh, next in line. This is, this is who I want to run for president after me. And he doesn't come out and say it. Uh, he, he doesn't make it fully clear. Although, um, according to some people, it actually is more or less official at this point. Yeltsin talks to Putin at this point and says, you know, I want you to be president at some point. But he keeps it a secret. And actually, as time goes on with Putin as prime minister, it starts to seem like, oh man, maybe we got the wrong guy for the job. Because Putin is not, at this time, a good politician. He's a good administrator. He has an effective way of communicating in a sort of uh, different way. But he's not like your classic sweet-talking, personable politician who's going out, shaking hands, kissing babies, right? That's not Putin at all. And so people who are planning on running for president aren't very concerned about him. They don't think that Putin is formidable. And it appears that they're right, that he might be prime minister, he might have the inside track, but he doesn't have the charisma, the name recognition, he doesn't have the oomph to get him over the finish line. But this starts to change late in the administration as Putin takes over a war that Russia was fighting at the time. Uh, Russia was fighting a war within its own borders in a region called Chechnya. Now, Russia is majority Christian, specifically majority Russian Orthodox, but the region of Chechnya is in Russia, but it is majority Muslim. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, some people decided to rise up there to try and break off and become independent. And Russia was, of course, not okay with this, so they sent in troops. There was an insurgency, and so Russia was fighting a war to keep Chechnya as a part of Russia. Now, remember, Putin is someone who believes in law and order. He lamented that Russia had fallen from power so precipitously since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, remember, when he was in charge of the KGB office in Dresden, and he called for backup, and the response was, Moscow is silent. And, and he was so haunted by that, right? Well, he never wanted that to happen again. So, like, this hits a nerve for Putin, right? Like, oh, you Chechens... You think you can tear apart the Soviet Union? You think Moscow is going to be silent again? That is not going to happen. So he comes into a situation where the war was not going well. It was a quagmire. Uh, there was a counterinsurgency situation like what the United States faced in Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam. And so the first thing that Putin does as prime minister is he goes down to the war zone. And it's a really compelling image that sets him apart from Yeltsin, who was old and obese and frail and drunk more often than not. So he couldn't strike the same image that Putin is striking, which is to don fatigues, you know, wear a uniform, go down to an active military zone, and he declares, quote, we're going to bang the hell out of these bandits. He decides they're going all in. You know, if we're going to fight, we're going to really fight. We're not going to hold anything back. The war in Chechnya was deeply unpopular in Russia. And again, you know, like Vietnam or Iraq, it seems like a quagmire. So it was assumed at the time that it'd be really unpopular. In fact, it seemed like, you know, some people probably thought, okay, well, this is going to tank Putin's popularity. He's supposed to run for president in a year. And now he's taking over this extremely unpopular, unwinnable war. And so Putin says, you know what? 
I'm going all in. Putin realizes his only chance at winning the war, becoming popular, becoming president, is to just bomb the hell out of them. Um, throw everything at these rebels. And so the bombing takes on like apocalyptic levels. If you want, you can go Google Grozny destroyed um, or like Grozny after war. So Grozny was the capital there in Chechnya. And you should look at these images. I mean, that's just basically like flattened. There's nothing there. They, they bombed it to smithereens. They bombed it to the Stone Age. And that was Putin's decision. Like, all right, well, if we're going to fight, we're going to fight. And um, we're going to do whatever it takes to win, even if we have to level this whole freaking city. And that is what they do. The collateral damage is awful. It's terrible. It's a brutal humanitarian nightmare. Schools and hospitals were getting bombed along with military targets. So the press is getting after him. Like, how can you just kill all these people and just destroy the city? And he doesn't want to hear it. He says, quote, I'm tired of answering these questions. Russian aircraft are only striking terrorist camps. We will go after them wherever they are. If, pardon me, we find them in the toilet, we will waste them in the outhouse. You know, this shocks the journalists who are asking these questions, but something shocking happens. Putin's popularity starts to skyrocket. The Chechen war was deeply unpopular, yes, but that was in part because the Russian forces were losing, which was humiliating to everyday Russians who, in the space of like 10 years, see their country go from being a global superpower, you know, it's like United States and Russia, the only two powers that matter in the world, to, okay, we can't even deal with these rebels in our own borders. And um, it made them lose confidence in themselves, in their country. And so this guy comes in and is like, no, you know what? Actually, we can win and we're going to win. And people like that. Um, and so his popularity starts to skyrocket. So now things are going great for Yeltsin's plan to have Putin be the new president. His popularity is rising quickly. But Yeltsin had a knack for showmanship and he didn't want to leave anything to chance. So he pulls off one last brilliant move. In Russia, New Year's is the biggest holiday by far. It's like Christmas, New Year's, Halloween, and the 4th of July all rolled into one. And there's a tradition for the president to address the nation in a big televised address that everyone watches. And the address of 1999 is particularly important and anticipated. For one thing, it's the start of a new millennium. The start of the 2000s obviously felt like a big moment. And secondly, as I said, it was a time for a lot of change for Russia. They were six months away from the election of a new president. This is going to mark the first democratic, peaceful transfer of power in Russia's entire history. And this would be the last New Year's Eve speech of their first president. So during this big address, Yeltsin gets up and says, quote, I have heard people say more than once that Yeltsin would cling to power as long as possible, that he would never let go. That is a lie. He then goes on to say that he was going to peacefully step down, but that he wasn't going to wait until June. He said, quote, Russia should enter the new millennium with new politicians, new faces, new people who are intelligent, strong, and energetic, while we, those who have been in power for many years, must leave. He announces that he's stepping down immediately and naming Vladimir Putin as his successor and interim president. Then Putin gets up and gives a short speech. It's not very memorable, but the image of him addressing the nation, a new leader for a new millennium, is enough. It's brilliant. It's genius. Putin's popularity had already been rising, but now he gets this big boost from this incredible piece of propaganda. Furthermore, 
this gives him a few months to actually be president, to be the incumbent before election is actually held. And so in those six months, he, he basically doesn't even need to campaign. He has no coherent platform. He doesn't go to campaign stops. He doesn't participate in debates. Uh, instead, his form of campaigning is to go down to the war zone and be filmed interacting with the Russian troops. He stays above the fray and acts presidential. He refuses to go to televised debates saying, quote, these videos are advertising. I will not be trying to find out in the course of my election which is more important, Tampax or Snickers. His only campaign platform is, you know, various vague promises to return Russia to greatness. And uh, he has some positions on bipartisan issues such as raising pensions for veterans of World War II and coming down hard on crime and corruption. Um, but he refuses to really even address some of the more controversial issues. So when election day arrives a few months later, it's anticlimactic. He's elected president of the Russian Federation in a landslide in a free and fair election. You know, obviously there would be questions about the validity of some of his elections later on, but for this one, there essentially is none. Uh, he's wildly popular. Remember, in 1995, Vladimir Putin was an unemployed former bureaucrat who was thinking about becoming a judo teacher. At the start of the new millennium, just five years later, he was the most powerful man in Russia, the head of the second largest military in the world with thousands of nuclear weapons at his disposal. And unbeknownst to the world, he would not be just another president of Russia, but a dominating force who loomed large over Russia for decades. The era of Putin had begun. So let's take a step back and analyze. How do we explain Putin's rise? At first glance, the primary factor that comes to mind is frankly luck. It just kind of seems like he was a guy who was in the right place at the right time. He lucked into his position in the mayor's office in St. Petersburg and the presidential administration in Moscow. And he just happened to be the most solid, loyal seeming guy around when Yeltsin was looking for a successor who would make sure he wasn't prosecuted or harmed. And definitely there was an element of luck in any story of success. There invariably is an element of luck. And, um, and this is no different, but I do think that's definitely only one piece of the puzzle. Uh, he was able to take advantage of those fortunate circumstances in a way that few others could have. So what were those attributes and strategies that enabled him to take advantage of those moments of good luck? The first is consistency. Putin is unbelievably consistent and has been since judo pulled him off the streets and turned him into a disciplined person. You don't get big highs and you don't get big lows with Putin. He, uh, if you watch him speak, it's very rare to see him express a lot of emotion or ever lose control of himself. He's just consistent and he quietly and efficiently gets the job done. And so I think consistency is one of the most underrated attributes that uh, a person can have. And it's one that Putin has in spades. The second thing I'll point out is his willingness to stay out of the spotlight and make others look good. Obviously this is a podcast for ambitious people and ambitious people unsurprisingly are often anxious to receive credit for the things that they do. But drawing attention to yourself often hurts you in the long run. Those who achieve great things are often those who are willing to toil in secret and deflect the credit to someone else. You're playing the long game. It all bounces back to you in the end. Putin made the mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, look good as he took on much of the grunt work and stayed in the background. And he did it again for the federal government, quietly carrying out needed reforms and difficult initiatives, all the while staying out of the spotlight while Boris Yeltsin took most of the credit. But, you know, in the end, Sobchak was able to recommend him to Moscow as someone who'd be a good employee. And Yeltsin was able to promote him through the ranks, eventually appointing him 
prime minister, and then interim president. So I do think that's one thing you can do is ask yourself, who can I make look good? Who, who can I promote? Who, who can I boost? And know that it will come back to you in the end. The other thing I wanted to point out is a, a couple things about Putin's mindset. The first is this idea that, look, he's a career man. And to him, the KGB represented the power of the Russian state. And the FSB is a successor to the KGB. But he really, you know, this is not someone who was handsome, athletic, intelligent, popular. You know, he got a lot of self-validation and a lot of self-worth out of being attached to this organization, the KGB, that was so powerful. That's where he derived a lot of his self-worth from. And that's why it was so um, almost traumatic for him, that moment when he heard, Moscow is silent. You know, they're not coming, the cavalry's not coming to help you in Dresden. Because it's like, oh, this thing that I have attached myself to, this thing that I get all my self-worth from, is, is actually not as powerful as I thought. And so you can see that in Putin in like, to him, the most important thing is the power of the Russian state. And uh, that, that will always be true for him. Uh, and I think that's sort of uniquely true of him. Uh, the other thing I would say is, look, this is someone who was very consistent, who's a good communicator, who did the right thing at the right time, but is not brilliant, is not a genius. And I think that there are Sometimes people exaggerate a little bit and get a little over anxious and say, oh, you know, this is the guy, the puppet master pulling all the strings behind American politics. Uh, he controls everything. He's deceiving everyone. You know, he, he controls what we see in here and in social media. Can you believe he's manipulating our elections these ways? And we'll get into that, all of that in another episode. But this is to say, I think sometimes people give him too much credit. This is someone who was a backroom bureaucrat for most of his career for a reason. Yes, he's intelligent, he's a good worker, he's a hard worker, but this is not someone who's a genius. This is not someone who's playing 10D chess, right? This is um, a, a company man of the KGB in the Russian state. And so I think people should orient their mind towards that. Okay, we'll get into more of that though uh, in part two and part three of this series. So uh, this is where we'll end part one. Um, but obviously, this is not the end for our friend Vladimir. We have yet to see how it is that he consolidates power, elevates Russia to a first-rate geopolitical power, and acquires billions of dollars, making himself one of the wealthiest people in the entire world. Next episode, you'll obviously also start to see Putin go dark as he starts having political opponents and dissidents jailed, tortured, and killed. So join me next time for part two of the life of Vladimir Putin on how to take over the world. Thanks for listening. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.